0: Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. Two reoccurring topics that we speak about repeatedly on this podcast are patriotism and culture wars. So when we saw that today's guest, Sunder Katwala, had written a book called How to Be a Patriot, why love of country can end our very British culture war, we actually absolutely had to get him back on the show. Sunder, welcome back.
1: Great to be here, thanks for the invitation.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. And Steve, hello.
1: Oh, h- Hello, how are you both doing? And nice to nice to be back with you.
0: Thank you very much. So, Sander, before we start, would you mind introducing yourself to uh, any of our listeners who aren't aware of your work or haven't heard you on here before?
2: Sure, yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm currently director of the Think Tank British Future, which I founded just over a decade ago which um is nonpartisan and charitable but is about the identity issues in Britain today can we be a confident inclusive welcoming Society but quite interested in the issues that divide and polarize and how we navigate those so that's 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 what I've been doing most of the time I ran the Fabian Society for uh, a period before that and have been in journalism and think tanks um and so on and then the book is my kind of personal, experience of identity and how that gives me my perspective on
1: these great culture clashes and culture wars as some people call them. So we're going to deep dive into the book shortly but um, of course you came on the podcast before and I was looking back on our our records and it was actually June 2020 when you came on Um, and thinking back then we were middle of the pandemic um, and at the time we were talking about the also, the aftermath of the BLM protests, uh, I think the Edward Coulson statue had just been toppled. And that was very much in the news. So it's interesting to reflect back and feel it feels that things were quite negative then. And maybe they're more positive now. So maybe not by too much, but a little bit more positive of context to to have a conversation.
2: Well, I think I think we were talking about, you know, racism and race and the Black Lives Matter protests. My 16 um, my year old, as she was, then listened to that podcast and she said, Dad, it was quite good. But you were very middling, you know, and I was like, that's a compliment actually and so that was quite interesting but um you know that that was that was an energizing and polarizing moment around issues of race and you know that's that's one of the challenges that these whatever issue happens you know different people have different perceptions of what it's of what it's meant
1: well we you know our thing is very much being middly. and uh I was reading the preface to your book and uh, let me just see if I found the right bit but I think you refer to uh, being between two trenches, which of course, is the name of the podcast, No Man's Land. So I, I sort of did a little fist pump. But yes, that, that's 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 uh, a. Um, well, I don't know if it's our influence. I imagine it's the flu, but I'll I'll, t- I'll take it.
2: Yeah, the I mean the you know the the personal sort of way in to the book is i mean i'm i've been thinking and writing about different identity issues and we can be discussing the channel crossings one week or black lives matter as we were saying or you know the future united kingdom and scotland and you know it moves around a lot but i'm interested in the links between between these issues and i'm quite optimistic um and one of the things i'm thinking about at the start of the book is actually I'm not just an optimist because some people are optimistic and some people aren't. I'm an optimist about by experience, about my experience of this country. But that very much relates to how old I am. I think I'm I'm 49 now. But um, um I was born in the 70s to parents who came from India and Ireland to this country in you know, a few years earlier. So I grew up with identity issues to think about because I'm, you know, I'm obviously a bit Indian um by my name, but I'm slightly more Irish than I am Indian really because um the Catholic Church likes to make sure they get a hold of the children. So my dad has converted from Hinduism to Catholicism. So I'm I'm sort of English and British as far as I'm aware when I'm eight and the World Cup's on and the Eurovision's on this so on. Um, and then obviously you become a teenager you these identity issues, race are quite complicated. It, just, it might sound like I've got a lot to sort out, but by by the end of the century, by the time I'm like late teens, adulthood and so on, being sort of Lapsed by then, lapsed Irish, Catholic, agnostic, Indian Irish sort of Scouser Essex uh, um, is working okay for me. Um because um actually it's becoming easier to be British if you are from different ethnic backgrounds, ethnic minority backgrounds, being mixed races on the point of becoming a little bit fashionable um, and you know, part of the future, um, and so on. It's got easier to be Irish in Britain, not that people know that I'm Irish, but but Irish Catholics have felt that because the IRA bombing stopped. It's got a lot more fashionable to be Indian, which is a very low status identity. So maybe I've just got this, I mean, I you know, having obviously thought about race and racism and what's going on quite a lot as a teenager, I've come to think, well, I'm very British, aren't I? if your parents are from an Ireland, island, you're not going to be Belgian. Um, but also maybe I've just got quite a lucky hand here because other people are having a different experience of Britain. It's got easier to be Catholic, it's probably got harder to be Muslim at exactly the same time, you know, that um, those anti-racism protests of 2020 are about the fact, in a way, that the sort of story of ethnic minority progress, some black British people are saying, we feel left out that, we don't think that works for us, and I think with the majority group, um, there are some people who obviously feel threatened by my sense of confidence about British and English identities, that's the question for me is much less, um, you know, um, has this country got a place for people like me? Because I, I was, I'd sorted that out by the late 1990s and I thought Britain had sorted it out. It's more, you know, what's the point of me having a confident sense of identity and navigating difference if everyone else is absolutely at loggerheads about Brexit, about statues, about Scotland, about race, about religion, about faith, about multiculturalism? So I am trying to sort of test my sort of. Optimism by experience against the fact that everyone else seems to think that we're becoming more anxious, more fragmented, more divided, more polarized.
1: That there's so much there I want to get back to, but I actually want to start by just asking, why did you choose to write the book now?
2: Well, I think I think it was also time to sort of pull things together. Um, and see if I could bring it all together. As I say you get a lot of opportunities to say, you know, record immigration figures, what do you think, or channel crossings, what do you think? And so on. So I'm trying to see have I got the answers to it. Um, I've I've agreed to write it, and I am writing it. Um, um, and I'm trying to finish it around the time that the Queen dies. But that was that was helpful in the sense that, you know, it's a sad and solemn moment, but the the coronation and the and the death of the queen are are a bookmark. To an era really and so and so the way i've kind of conceptualized it in the end is is responding to that you know sometime after i drift it where she became the prime minister and that's quite that's quite an interesting low-key moment as it turned out but quite an interesting moment if you're um if you're british asian um i think to see that someone can become the prime minister and so on. so this is a moment of of a great deal of intensity of identity clashes but but i'm not sure I'm not sure we've got the right lens on on what's actually happening and what we and what we do about it. You know, when people talk about culture wars and other people starting them, and nobody wants them anyway, so let's just hope they go away. Um, I wanted a bit more than that,
1: and actually ask what we actually try to do about this. And and that sounds fascinating. I want to start with the how to be a patriot bit, um, and something that comes across very clearly. I think we came across very clearly when we spoke to you before is that you don't see patriotism uh as divisive as a negative when many people who um are on the progressive side of things perhaps do see it that way so to talk us through why is that why do you see it in a more positive light
2: well identity divides and patriotism divides and you know it might be especially obvious it's going to divide you know you're we're a united kingdom or a disunited kingdom a multinational so we've got competing patriotisms in the nations and then we've got competing ideas of what it means to be british you know which means you're very for brexit or you think it's the worst idea ever so it's obvious it's obvious that it divides um i think it's i think it's more obvious if you're an ethnic minority liberal than if you're white liberal as to why as to why it's quite an important thing and you know all the data has always shown that the people with the slightly the stronger sense of uh, British identity tend to be Black, Asian and mixed-race people from different backgrounds, especially Commonwealth backgrounds. And there's a lot going on there, but partly it's contested and challenged and you you assert your claim to it because it's being challenged. And partly because I think if you are, especially from a Commonwealth, Black, Asian or mixed-race background, um, you know the history of this country. It's hard not to know the history of this country, whereas the, the rest of the country can be a bit sort of amnesiac about about its identity so national identity mattered to me because um thinking about whether it was simple or difficult to be English or British and what it meant to be British with parents from and Ireland was obviously something important and something on which a lot of other people had views Norman Tebbit had views about you know which cricket team I should support um, and so on people supporting the England football team had sort of views about what sort of what sort of expressions of Englishness they wanted to sort of present to their rival supporters from Europe, you know, and, and you know, that made me, you know, wonder whether I was meant to be there or not. So um, it was obviously important to me to have a sense of national identity that, that worked. And, you know, I think, I think if you don't think it matters, you're probably the sort of person that's got a national identity that you can take for granted.
1: Uh, we like to be very analytical in this podcast, but when you talked about how different groups um, uh, feel, particularly prime Britain, I, I slightly welled up a bit. That that made me feel very pr- proud, actually, to be British, and, and particularly at a time when it's quite a negative... Well, maybe not now, but it, the past few years we talked about, it, it feels like Britishness has had a, a negative reaction. It That kind of feeling about we're a liberal, inclusive country... is something emotional about that and i suppose that is something that i don't know i feel that gets left out of the conversation a bit
2: yeah i think um you know we yeah some people don't want to have the monarchy um you know i changed my mind about that and i I talk in the writing the book about about why that is but if you are a country that has this sense of a thousand years of tradition which is what we were looking at when the king was crowned. And, you know, some of it's quite silly when he's presented with his sort of glove of mercy and his spurs of courage and so on. But it would be a shame, I think, to stop doing something, you know, that you've been doing for a thousand years just because you could be a bit more rational, a bit more like everyone else. But does that does that sense of depth of tradition stop you being confident about the modern world? I mean, I just think I think Britain has the potential to be a country that is enormously confident about its future and so on because because of that sense of tradition. So I'm, I'm quite interested in how you bridge those things rather than feeling you have to choose between them. I think, I think a lot of the cultural polarisation comes from those open versus closed, the future or the past kind of choices in politics. And actually, I think if you want to handle change well, you keep your traditions and invite everybody to the party. It's a much more likely way to pull it off, I think.
1: And I think that's the the source of my slightly vague comment when I go mean, about feeling pride is that actually, it's such a great thing if people, people in Britain, uh, of all kinds and around the world want to are interested in our sort of slightly quirky things, but also interested in our core values. And I think that's what was behind that. I, I want to ask you about the things like the coronation and I guess our slightly quirky national symbols. And what role do they play? and And, and is it I got the sense that that there's a role there for bringing people together. Uh, is that is that how you see it? I think we were talking about patriotism
2: can divide. What what divides is the politics of identity and national identity. You know, Scottish nationalism versus the Union or Remain versus Leave, and so on. And then an interesting question is when a society feels quite big issues are kind of splitting us down the middle. Does it have anywhere to go where, you know, while having that argument, it can say, but we've still got something we do share, something we agree on. And um national symbols are going to be those things. Now, I'm more confident about Britain than America for lots of reasons. And we could debate what's going on in America. And I think there's lots of evidence that that while we're much more divided than we want to be as Britain, we we haven't got the scale and depth and intensity of division of America. America doesn't really seem, and it's a country that used to be really good at this, doesn't really seem to have that many shared institutions, moments, monuments and things that, that, that aren't now caught up in these battles. We've got quite a lot in this country. Um, the thing that wins when people are asked what makes you provide to be British is, you know, it's a public service, it's a national health service, it's quite a sort of leftish patriotism uh but we've got remembrance actually which is pretty widely respected across the traditional conservative right and and much of the left as well partly because it's also um increasingly people aware there's an inclusive story there about you know different service different sacrifice for the commonwealth um and so on monarchy obviously doesn't work for you know some people maybe a quarter of people but it's a it's a thing, it's a thing we can choose to use. I think that a lot of people, you know, one of the reasons I changed my mind about it, or I'd to change my mind about the monarchy in terms of having thought it was absolutely rational to get rid of it and what was how absurd it was to have a hereditary head of state. You know, by the time I was 18, I realized that like most people didn't think that. Was that just because they were really odd? By the time you have got children and they're going off to nursery school wearing paper crowns and so on, you've got to think, do I want to tell them not everyone agrees with this, or do I just want to let it go? quickly you know um I was at I was at one of the concerts I was at the Windsor concert with my 10 year old we were wearing paper crowns and it's much easier I think to just go with the flow in that in that in that sense so it doesn't work for everyone but there must be people you know thinking it's good that there's something that 20 million of us do it's good that there's a street party it's just a street party that isn't got hasn't got a sort of loyalty test and you know how sort of how jingoistically patriotic are you but actually you're very welcome to come you know wherever you're from whatever you think about this because it's nice that something should bring us together I think it's important to have those things if you think about I don't know Scotland is a society that's you know obviously really split down the middle on quite a big question like are you part of the United Kingdom or not it's really important if people on both sides that question can say well we still support the same football team we still support the same rugby team we're actually going to live together in this place when we've done side of that really really big question that i think you're wrong about
1: i hadn't i hadn't realized that you had been uh someone who in the past was i don't know whether you were republican or what but you suggested you were less favorable than the monarch, than monarch. I, was,
2: I was totally republican when i was like 14 yeah. 16 right. 18, that, that kind of thing it just it seemed to me absurd um and my dad wasn't my dad was pro monarchy from india my mum was pretty strongly republican she's from cork in Ireland and so you might think I'm not going to be a Republican like there wasn't you know there aren't going to be many takers for it so um it just it just seemed really obvious to me that um that the hereditary principle was 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 not a good principle but it's then thinking through if you then think well why do two-thirds of people not agree with me one thing would be they're all absolutely stupid sheep who are duped by all this propaganda and if they thought about it they would be and another thing is to think actually what would the loss be as well as the gain of, you know, having this elected president might do it well? I mean, I can now see, you know, it's really obvious to me why, you know, because it's quite a scarce thing these days, why there would be a sense of loss. Also, um, you know, the causality of this works the other way around. If you worry that, you know, it's class, it's symbolism, it's hierarchy and so on. I mean, if you look at the most egalitarian countries, they tend to be constitutional monarchies. And that's probably because, you know, you've kept a monarchy in the 21st century, you've probably got quite a stable political system. You're Sweden, you're Denmark, you're Britain, uh, you're the Netherlands, and so on. But there's nothing at stake really in having a performative symbolic monarchy. But it could do some it could do some good. That's what that's where I ended up on on that question. But also, which is quite important, we can disagree well about it because if Barbados doesn't want the monarchy, then the King will turn up and take the flag down and shake hands. And so on. If if um, Australia, Canada don't want the monarchy, it'd be incredibly easy. If we don't want a monarchy, it'd be inc- the only thing that's stopping you not having one is democratic consent for wanting something different. Um, and you know that isn't going to happen for a long time, in my view. Um, but but it's actually it's actually perfectly democratic, I think, to have constitutional monarchy if 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 you understand that those are the terms on which you've got one.
1: Yeah, the, the irony that a monarchy exists by democratic consent, I think, is is a very is a very interesting one. You touched on this for the, in this next question, but just to wrap a few threads together. So, where should patriotism fit in progressive politics, and by that I mean progressive ideas, really, rather than day to day politics? How, how do you sort of make the two work together?
2: One thing I would say to progressives, and I, you know, I think it's worth getting why most people have got national identity and what matters to them. I think. I don't think anybody has ever governed a country. I can't think of an example where someone's governed a country without being somewhat at ease with its national symbols like the flag of the country you want to govern. So there's a sort of common sense test there. And it might be that you can make a lot of use of it as well if you're Nelson Mandela and you want to think about the rugby jersey and the flag that you want and so on. But if you can't do it, you're in trouble. I would though say to progressives, don't try too hard about this. Don't bang on about why you can't get it, why it's difficult. I'm a massive sceptic about a thing called, in inverted commas, progressive patriotism. Um, I get what people are trying to do when they do that. They're trying to say, don't want the really bad version, do want the good version. It can be inclusive, not inclusive. I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time trying to think about how to get those boundaries right. But this kind of progressive patriotism idea... um is accidentally being pejorative of just normal mainstream patriotism by people who haven't decided they've got the really progressive version. And so I think it's insufficiently respectful of, I think it's good to have a form of patriotism that people who are progressive, people who are centrist, people who are liberal, people who are left, can get on board with. But that's not going to be the whole thing or the only safe version. I mean, if, if you buy this idea that you want things that the winners and losers of general elections and referendums can kind of, respect together, then you're gonna to have to have a patriotism that's got space for um, you know, the new, emerging, more radical, more liberal, more left ideas, and for quite a lot of people who are quite conservative in the same idea.
1: That is a very interesting distinction. Because I, I'd always thought of um progressives being comfortable with patriotism as the same thing as progressive patriotism. I think you just explained why uh why they're why they're not the same.
2: There's another mistake that has been made. So the difference between civic and ethnic nationalism or sometimes between nationalism and patriotism is very important to lots of people, not just on the left. But it's like, you know, it's inoculative and good to have the good civic version we all want that's shared values, mutual respect, multi faith multi-ethnic, and so on. Um, And it's really bad, obviously, to have the version that tips over into Nazism. I mean, these are obviously obviously correct points. But then the mistake is to think that it's more inclusive, the more, the more you thin it out, the more you make it possible for people to get involved with it. So, you know, blood-and-soil nationalism is obviously the terrible version. It's Hitler, it's Paul Pot, it's genocidal, um, you know, and it's it's atavistic and dangerous. That's, of course, true. But blood-and-soil patriotism is one of those things where Orwell would have said, you know, it's just a cliche where people use the words. Blood and soil are different, and soil isn't blood. And place uh, an inclusive patriotism should have a really strong sense of pay, place and it can have a really strong sense actually of culture and identity because you don't need to take Shakespeare away for black and Asian people to be able to be British it's slightly insulting if you're black and Asian I think to think that's what you have to do so I think I think the civic patriotism has tried to be sort of you know and we haven't got a constitution it's hard to here, but it's a sort of Federal Republic of Germany version of constitutional patriotism, be proud of the new democratic constitution, be proud of the institutions, but watch out for the cultural and emotional stuff. Well, actually, it's the emotional stuff that works. It's the it's the football teams, the rugby teams, the traditions, the songs, the poetry, the literature. And that stuff's got diversity all the way through it. Um, and so I think I think this progressive patriotism just spends too much time inoculating and too little time celebrating the stuff. You could share so I think you have a cultural patriotism not just a civic patriotism that's really really inclusive because Shakespeare can belong to anybody but anyone can write the next chapter you know Commonwealth English literature is absolutely full of Irish influences Caribbean influences Indian influences into what is still an English literary tradition and canon I mean, do you mind I just,
0: I, sorry, right. do you mind just explaining some of the phrases that you used there? Like, what does blood and soil mean? What really does, like, civic mean in that sense? So, for people who are, you know, yeah. new to this, so they don't really understand or yeah. are not familiar with some of these terms.
2: I think academics have tended to want to make a distinction. It's correct. I can actually see what it's doing between ethnic, uh, patriotism or nationalism or national identity and civic national identity and classically you know the one where you know if you haven't got the inherited blood of the country then you know you're not going to be in doesn't matter where you were born and the version of the civic patriotism tends to be the version where you know in america or canada you know don't whoever your grandparents are whoever your parents are wherever you were born if you want to pledge allegiance share this flag you're in and you know there have been different traditions like germany didn't let People who were of Turkish ethnic origin, born in Germany, whose parents were born in Germany, become German until the turn of the century, because citizenship was based on blood. Britain has always had a kind of fuzzy and inclusive sense of what's going on. Canada, Australia, America are kind of quite strong at being these sorts of civic, of many one diversity, unity from diversity countries. The West European tradition is a bit more close than that. And, you know, some countries are going to stay closed on this kind of idea. Japanese people don't really think you can become Japanese very easily if you weren't Japanese. And so if that's your view, if if you've got a sort of closed idea of what the nation is, then you're going to have some temporary workers. You can have some academics, you can have some finance people. You can have some people doing really menial jobs, you know, as guest workers. But you're not going to want citizens from different backgrounds. Um, Whereas if you've got this sense of a civic patriotism where you know everyone's welcome to be canadian or american or british you know on these rules and these terms and this is how it works then you're going to be more open like that so that's that's the that's the basic distinction that's been underlying it i just my my kind of question to the civic inclusive side which obviously i'm in favor of is 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 there an instinct that says to make it inclusive you have to take things out because taking everything out isn't necessarily more inclusive
0: Sorry, Steve, John, you had a question.
1: Oh, yeah, well, one, um, to extend your point a little bit, Sunder, um, when we talked to John Denham, I don't know whether he's someone that you'd think of as a, uh, you're on the same page with patriotism, but I remember a point that really stuck with me was that um, if you want people to do things together, uh, you know, fight a war, um, back public services, stay at home during the pandemic, you, it helps to kind of feel a sense of, community identity which patriotism and some of the ideas and I think you described them very eloquently are part of and of course if you're being progressive about anything that that's kind of what you're trying to do to be able to do things collectively um so I just wanted to flag that point that that came up and th- th- that sounds consistent with what you're saying is it yes I mean
2: I've, I've got a lot of time for John Denham I've been talking to him about these issues for uh you know a couple of decades and I think that's important I think I think the, the idea that john and i share here that this matters and that you know social democrats might particularly think that it that it matters it might be quite a hard sell these days to you know people 20 or 30 years younger than us um and that's that is a challenge and um i think i think there are lots of reasons you know partly a sort of image and reputation issue of what people mean if they say patriotism um, and so on you know does it give you a certain set of images that are more that are more inclusive but another thing i think young people will be saying is um have we got have we got time for this these days you know there's bigger issues cost of living uh, social and economic divides what the banks are up to the planet's burning you know i haven't got time to sort of sit around and think about national identities and symbols i'm trying to do things that are that are more important than that. And isn't this just going to distract people or divert? And I think I think that is a massive risk on the question of where do we get our sense of mutual obligation and social coalitions and solidarity from. Because it's obviously underpinned welfare states and public services, that sense of the us that we're all part of. If you lose your job, it affects me. I've got a stake in you doing well getting a job being protected if you haven't a job and climate change is going to be a global issue but it's going to depend on a sense of local and national obligation as well so I think unless you've got a really strong social glue somewhere else to do this solidarity you you should be a bit a bit averse to this kind of don't need it I haven't got time it's not important enough it's all it's all sort of symbolism and nonsense.
0: I'm really glad that you said the word solidarity because um the issue of solidarity massively underpins welfare states. So if you look at the sort of um the Nordic sort of social democratic um welfare state models less so now than than they used to be, but they're often underpinned by this really strong sense of identity. So as someone on the left, how do you think, and we'll come back to some of these issues, but how do you think? A, a left leftist party movement government aspirational government can harness that sense of identity enough to build a kind of social democratic government in such a diverse society as we have at the moment do you think it is a challenge do you think it's a challenge that could be
2: yeah, I, I think it's I think it's an, a necessary and achievable challenge. I mean, one of the arguments here, and you know, David Goodhart, I think, started around of this debate a couple of decades ago, and people have been having it in the academic data is just saying, is it is it inherently more difficult if you've got more ethnic and faith diversity or more social diversity of other kinds? Does that just make it more difficult, and in the end, you won't be able to maintain it? And I think I think some of the challenges. Against, um, on say Scandinavian egalitarianism, so it can obviously reflect that kind of challenge. And I mean, while accepting the challenge, I would say it's not the it's not the level of diversity that you've got. It's the it's the amount of usness. Is there an us, or isn't there an us that's here? And so when I when I write about migration in this book, I, I say the fundamental issue underpinning consent for migration, confidence in migration, is the can people become us, how do people become us question. Because if there's a sense of, an, you know, British ethnic minorities are an unusual ethnic minority groups, certainly in a European context, because there's a sense of a stake and a claim on the usness, the Britishness, that is a bit rare in Western Europe, and that relates to the history of empire, commonwealth, decolonization and so on. But I think we're I think we're insufficiently aware that that is a that is a very valuable thing that you've got the sort of ethnic minority groups that most instinctively think they're part of the US. Now you know the issue seventy five years ago when the windrush arrived is that people who've had this sense of the British story inculcated into them in an imperial system in Jamaica and Kingston arrive in an England where nobody knows that story, and so that is a sense of conflict and difficulty. But it's the it's the usness you need to keep. And the usness you get by emotional, symbolic, shared moments and experiences. And so be worse if there isn't a BBC, be worse if there are no things that 10 million of us do. And you don't have to do, you don't have to be into the coronation. But if you've got the coronation and men's football and women's football as well, and the Your Vision Song Contest, there'll be some moments that bring us together and shared experiences of the society you live in, things to talk about in the playground, things to talk about in the workplace. Those are important ways for people with, you know, parents from different countries to have something in common, have something they feel they share.
0: So something else that I'd like to pick up from what you've just said is I've heard a few times that England, Britain don't have a national story. So you've talked there about some shared spaces You've talked a bit about stories that parts of the um, sort of population, I suppose, will have. But how do you feel? How do you react to those who say that we don't have a story or we haven't really had a, a story since the Second World War? And see, so we kind of keep going back to that as a kind of not founding story so much as but a unifying story. So, do you have a view on whether we have a story? And if so, what that is or is it a um, lot of different stories and is that if we do, is that unified or ununified?
2: I think I think we probably have got quite a lot of stories. I think I think we've never had a written constitution. We've never had a sort of revolution moment of that kind. Um and so, you know, in the way that new states do this, we we we're, we're more evolutionary than that. Um but you know America has got all of those things but it turns out to be remarkably polarized about what they about what they mean. Um I think um I think there's quite, it's obviously a complex story. It feels, and it sounds different, you know, the stories about Britain that are told in England from the south of England and from London can feel very English, to in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, there's you know, there's obviously a very different form of Britishness amongst sort of, you know, Ulster unionists um, who feel strongly British and among people in Birmingham who feel strongly British um, who are from sort of black and Asian backgrounds. So, so that kind of sense of, is there something underpinning it? In the end, I think we've got four or five very strong things we share around what the National Health Service actually represents as an institution around the traditions of remembrance and what they represent, I think around you know the sporting teams and things that we've got and there are there are ideas underpinning those things I and mean, one of the really important ideas, but perhaps it's under articulated is um is that you do get to become British, you know, migrants become British. Do the citizenship ceremony. The kids, a good a site is good at inclusion and integration is one where the children of migrants of different ethnicities, different national backgrounds have equal opportunities, but also an equal share, equal stake in the national identity, i.e., Rishi Sunak can be as British as you know the other people who are at his very posh private school, even though he's British Indian. And you can only have British Indian Prime Minister or a Scottish Asian First Minister, if people really believe that, Um, if people believe that people from minority backgrounds can represent the whole country, Um, if you believe that people from minority backgrounds should, you know, represent minority communities because somebody should speak for the inner cities, that's that's a possible version of, you know, community representation, but you wouldn't then make somebody Prime Minister um, as well. So, actually, that's macro-symbolic sense of Having a Prime Minister is proof, really, that people of different backgrounds can be trusted to be in charge of the us, be the leadership of who we are.
0: So let's go on a little bit to culture wars. Are we heading towards a culture war? And if so, what's leading us that way?
2: Um, We're not really having culture wars in Britain, if you take it seriously. But I want to challenge my liberal centrist friends here to just work a bit harder than saying what is somewhat true, which is in Britain, people don't aren't really up for it. And so it won't have the same intensity because I think there's too much fingers crossed. Let's go away. Now, if you take culture war really seriously in terms of setting the bar where it is and you don't mean, you know, disagreeing with someone on Twitter this morning about something or other culture war. I think is something very similar to a civil war. It's where a civil war is when violence happens because there are political differences that were irreconcilable and people couldn't agree peacefully on how to deal with them. And you never have violence between, you know, within a community about about you know who should run it or who should still be alive. You never really have that without an existential threat about a fundamental principle. I think, you know, whether it turned into violence or it doesn't, I think if you've got that kind of existential disagreement, it's the sort of thing I can't agree to disagree on. United States of America could not agree to disagree on slavery um, and so on. Deep moral clash and politics can't solve it. Then you've got a culture war and you're quite close to civil war. If you set that really high bar, America's there too much of the time because... People who vote for different parties can't agree if the votes were counted fairly or not. So we don't know if the election was right. And then they disagree about whether it would be legitimate to turn up with guns at the state capital if you didn't agree with it, or whether it would be legitimate to use violence if someone tried to take your guns away, or even the question of abortion, which is, you know, a moral absolute if you think it's murder of an unborn child, or a moral absolute if you think it's absolutely fundamental to women's rights. These are the kinds of issues that people can't um, disagree about and agree to disagree on. Is Brexit one of those issues? Is Scottish independence one of those issues? I mean, I think that's the question we face. Northern Ireland really was obviously that was a that was a you know an actual armed conflict involving terrorist groups and so on. And it turned out there was a political way to resolve something that's pretty irreconcilable. Is you know Ireland, Ireland, or is Ireland? Northern Ireland Britain, it turned out that you could find a political process, which was really, really hard. So um, I, think, I think we're very short of civil war style culture wars, but we're much more divided about culture and identity than we thought Britain would be. And so if I say it's a bit better than France or America, I think a very reasonable thing to
0: say would be to say that's a bit too lower bar to set there. So when you talk about calling off a culture war, what do you mean by that? And how crucially do you do it? You don't do it
2: by how most people think they should do it. because Most people do want to call off a culture war and they have a really easy way to do it, which is that people who don't agree with them should shut up and pipe down. You know, have like could the woke people leave the statues alone, please, or could the... Could down the street stop you know spinning headlines or something. So most people think you stop a culture war by um, the people who don't agree with doing something differently. Um, and fundamentally, I think if you want to stop a culture war, you th- think about what your tribe should do differently and whether you're prepared to make any kinds of concessions in language, tone, the way you approach your opponents, where you characterise them. That's how you. That's how you contain cultural disagreements in a way culture war is a you know is a it's a form of culture war in a way because you you know somebody says something uh, a bit left-wing about our history or a bit right-wing about um, you know contested issue to do with um, gender or whatever it's about and you say you're a culture warrior so you know I think you're allowed to have these arguments but are you are you doing this kind of them and us exclusion of somebody else from the nation who is someone you should be able to disagree with about politics. Clearly, if you take this approach that I'm outlining, you have to know where the fundamental boundaries are. You know, violence um, is out and not respecting your fellow citizens in the way they should be respected is out. And obviously, on issues of gender, sexuality, race, we're going to then have different claims about what, you know, where the boundary is. But but the the way to The way to moderate a culture war is actually to have the arguments about identity and culture that are at stake, but to have them in ways where you don't other your opponents to to too strong a degree, or where you line up all the issues. So if I know your views on one issue, if I know your view of climate change, I then know your view on everything else. Actually, we don't live in a country that's like that on climate change. Climate change is something that has got broad left and right support. In America, if I know your view on cl- of climate change, I probably know your view on abortion. I think that's quite dangerous.
0: And so is the role of patriotism um, in all of this, that unifying force that can act against the culture, that by um by embracing a patriotism we can agree to disagree because at the end of the day, we are all part of that same community.
2: Yeah, we have to live together on this particular bit of the island or we you know, we do these things together or there are voluntary institutions we've got, that's all important. Now, the political part of this is actually going to be more the problem than the solution in some ways because um, if most people don't want a culture war and we're less polarised than America, what we can't be is complacent. It will stay that way because there are three things making us, in this sense, more polarised in the American style, where, you know, you've got your one issue, then you line up all of the issues and you're in tribe blue or tribe red. Um, one is social media, and it actually brings us America's debates. One is the incentives of the media in a fragmented world. And then thirdly, there's the risk of the political parties. What what we want to, what I'm trying to diffuse throughout this book is a series of them and us conflicts, the majority and the minority, the Remainers and the Leavers, you know, whoever it is, um, we're trying to diffuse that conflict. But political parties are a shortcut to make representative democracy work, because we haven't all got time to sort out our views on tax and spending and climate mm-hmm. and everything else. And they, they do it by making these them and us appeals, don't they? Trust me, because you can't trust them, and so on. So they are actually vehicles of, you know, there are benefits, to having these political parties and representative democracy. But when they then say, but, you know, you've got to agree with us and we think the flag means this and that lot of plastic patriots and you can't trust them, they're they're doing something a bit corrosive to the national symbols that are, in a way, the antidote to political divisions going too far. So the political parties need forms of patriotism if they want to, to use the jargon, lean out of the realignment the Labour Party wants to be for towns as well as cities, for majority and minority groups, that's good. If the Conservative Party wanted to be for people under 30 as well as people over 60, that would be good. And I like a political system that gives them those incentives. But there's a danger that the social media and media dynamics make people think, I've just got to really bang the drum for my kind of 30% round here, because those other people are out of reach. And and that's self-reinforcing. If you're like, well, given the politics we have had the last five years, nobody under 30 is going to vote for me. I'll just, like, I'll tell a lot more stories about how incredibly stupidly woke they are to the people who are going to vote for me. You become part of the problem.
0: And so and we'll sort of conclude by going a bit more into politics and party politics. And let's start with how politicians should do patriotism. It's something we sort of touched on a little bit, but is there particular do's and don'ts around uh, patriotism? I'm thinking, I suppose, particularly of um labour under Starmer's embrace of like the the flag as a kind of cultural symbol really
2: I would say and I think this is true for the left and the right I would like people to do it normally and not do it performatively so the sort of taboo busting isn't exciting I've got the flag I'm a left wing party. I've got a flag I mean to me that just conveys anxiety so I just like to see people you know um, mark remembrance support the sports teams you know Mark moments like the Windrush anniversary as well, and say that's part of our national history. Find you know the new and old moments, just turn up, be normal, be part of them, uh, and do that. I think I think that's where the right should be as well. The right should be um, you know just in favour of the country we are today, and in favour of the patriotic symbols that we've got representing that inclusivity. So I think if your sort of politics of patriotism is kind of you know, having pictures of you in tanks with the biggest ever flag or sort of always having a flag because you just want people to know you like the flag because the last guy didn't. Um, To some extent, I think you're trying a bit hard. And uh, yeah, I'd particularly like the left not to tell us how difficult it is to do progressive patriotism for sort of a million reasons. I'd just like them to get on with having a normal association with liking the country you want to govern and Thinking there are things wrong with it, you want to change, and that's what patriotism is. Patriotism is, you know, creating the national health service because it didn't exist, and you want to serve the country better. So you can't, yeah, you can't dislike the country you want to govern, and some of the left does that, and obviously some of the right does that in its more miserablest moods.
1: And, and what kind of language should politicians use, if, if at all? Maybe they, maybe it's a show not tell thing, but uh, it strikes me that they often struggle to talk about this or find a way of talking about this do you, do you have any advice on on that
2: i think i think the show not tell thing is important i think you just turn up normally and you gauge with the high days and holidays of being a nation what you then need the tell not show bit you get you get hearing for your state of the nation analysis And what what I would particularly like to see maybe Starmer's Labour Party do is move beyond an approach to sort of culture and identity and culture wars that is essentially, I mean, it's not wrong, but it's um, avoid the obvious traps, um, which involves a lot of avoidance, actually, of trying to stay out of things. I would actually like to hear uh, an explicit principled argument for bridging and why bridging divides can be principled on climate change, on race, on all sorts of issues of equality. But 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 and he's talking about this a bit. You know, there's a there's a politics of respect for difference underneath that. There's an interest in bringing people together who've got different views and different backgrounds. And I think you know I would like to see the right have a go at that as well. I think I think conservatives obviously have a, have seen they've got with these educational devices they've got they've got a tactical advantage sometimes if they can find the most sort of left-wing piece of nonsense somewhere in a common room and then put it all over the newspapers and say there's much more cultural conflict in our country than people think there's a sort of short-term political advantage in that that's a very harried and shrill form of conservatism really where you should be really having a sort of communitarian approach about how a very liberal very individualistic society can kind of come together more so i would like to see both parties sort of micro segment a bit less and go for these broader national bridging narratives the thing that you need to tell and not show is then to have a state of the nation account of what's wrong and how you're going to fix it and i think you know it's hard for the conservatives they've had sort of three or four different governments of their own um and then that's the bit where starmer you know if you just if he Wants to be more than sort of you know you know it's time to change the oil you know need to get rid of the other lot you look safe has he got has he got an account of what's wrong with the country and how he wants to fix it I think that's his next challenge and but the the sort of everyday normal confidence with the national symbols is just uh, is just uh, it's a platform for getting that chance to get heard on your contentful argument
0: and then how should politicians respond to particularly sort of divisive, difficult um, questions that are deliberately sort of what's known as wedge issues. So, for example, how should a politician respond to a question such as, is Britain a racist country, given that that's a, a deliberately kind of provocative black or white kind of question?
2: I think on any of these cultural issues, you've got to know contemptfully where you want to go with them. It's no good sort of thinking the position is, you know, come by, our put the kettle on, you know, let's just split the difference, whatever it is. You've got to know what your answer is. I mean, you know, Britain isn't a racist country, in my view, in my experience, because um, it's a country that's made a lot of progress on race in my lifetime. And that progress is incomplete. And there's a lot of goodwill. trying to make more progress and a lot of barriers sometimes to knowing enough about the challenges and so on and so you know there's there's there are racists in our country they're a shrinking group there's there's disparity there's racial disadvantage there's racial discrimination you know if you're a young graduate and you've got a name that doesn't sound very british on your cv you're gonna have to send it into more places to get um to get an interview so you know I would say it's a national patriotic mission to, you know, root that out and to get that equal opportunity that we all think is right there. So it's an incomplete journey, but it's not a racist country. It's a country that's got a history of race, discrimination, diversity, empire, decolonialisation, immigration, integration. And it's um it's got better at this stuff and it's got further to go.
0: You think that there's a almost a short-term versus long-term? Thing here that in the short term you can as you say sort of micro segment and just chip up this little group away from this larger group and into this column over here to vote for you and that you know that might get you through the next headline through the next election but that all the time you're undermining the country and the unity and that if you took a slightly more sort of medium term approach okay so you might not win tomorrow's headline in the you know, this particular sort of particularly divisive or kind of uh, part of the press, let's say, but that overall in over the longer term you would find it more manageable to bring people together to get to where you want to go. Is that a fair characterization of your view?
2: I think I think I think there's a lot in that. What what I would say is that you've got to um differentiate the substance from the trivia. So I think avoiding trivia, not getting overexcited about it is good, but um, you know what? What some of the centrists say on this is, oh, no one cares about this stuff. You know, people only care about gas bills or the cost of living and so on. Everyone cares about identity. All politics is identity. So if it's substantial stuff, you know, what's the history we should teach in schools or something? That's a really important issue. But you want to do it in a way that brings different voices in. But I think your question is a good characterization. I think where the where the right risks going. In an election, they're probably not going to win. And in their reaction to it, um, if we look at say the National Conservatism Conference that was happening, when people are saying lean into the realignment, they're really saying lean into something that actually won you in one particular moment when Brexit was stuck against Jeremy Corbyn, it won you something quite big, but there wasn't, but it's actually a it's a shrinking sociology that's there, and and that sense that you just lean into the people who agree with you and don't pay any attention to people who don't agree the government should never do that but actually political parties will fail in the long term so I think I think the conservatives risk actually going into this kind of narrowing and shrinking group because they start writing off the cities or they start writing off young people I I would like to see I would like to see both parties compete for broadening not just mobilizing who you've already got but there's a there's a dynamic there, I think, which you can lock in where people start thinking, you know, there's no one left to persuade in this country. You've just got to mobilise your own troops. And that, that's a very dangerous form of politics.
0: So I think we've, we've talked about a lot of sort of similar issues around sort of identity and cultures and something like that. But I want to move on to uh, to finish with a slightly different question, which was in the context of, in my view, a growing debate between advocates of globalization and advocates of what i'll call post globalization so um in the aftermath of the pandemic and uh populists there's been some quarters move away from globalization so how should patriotic politicians or politicians who seek to rule over a nation that's a some sort of peace and comfort with itself what should they do to respond to that emerging tension between globalization and post-globalization
2: well i think i think national identity who you want to be what your mission is what your state of the nation is is potentially a really important driver i think of a rooted grounded internationalism that can paint people with it and it's a much more effective version of internationalism than a sort of pure post-national cosmopolitanism that I think is always pitching to a very narrow political segment of the highly educated. But um, on this sort of globalisation point, I mean, you know, Tony Blair's view of all of this was like, you know, the world's changed, just get with the programme, open or close. If you don't know the answer's open, you know, why are you so stupid? Um, But I'll equip and skill you to do that. And actually, if you think about Brexit or you think about any of the other questions about the rise of China or the global economy, if you think that there's good value and good gains for people in more internationalism, more multilateralism, more cooperation, you've got to win the argument at home and you've got to win the argument across educational divides for that. And national identity will be one of the ways you can do that, local identity will be another of the ways that you can do that, but if you ever let it go open versus closed, global versus national, global versus local, global's not going to win those arguments, so if you think it's important you've got to secure the consent um, at home, and politics, you know, challenges and threats, climate, migration, they're international, politics is local and national, and so you've got to have the argument at home for the internationalism you think is good for your
0: country. And just to finish, you do have a book out. Could you do a last bit to to plug it? Tell us when it's out and where we can find it and any other um, last bits that you want to inspire people with to go out and buy it.
2: I'd love people to read How to Be a Patriot. It's coming out on Thursday, the 25th of May. I think the Kindle uh, edition is out even before that, and there'll be an audio edition that I've uh, narrated myself. Um, it's a lot. I have tried to be very accessible with the book. So there's a lot of personal stories, stories about my extended family, my in-laws in Billericay, and, you know, why they were so for Brexit and so on, to try and illuminate these State of the Nation challenges. So I'm really excited and interested to hear from people about what they agreed with what they disagreed about my analysis of where we are and where we can go
0: well that sounds brilliant i uh look forward to uh, reading it myself so Sunder, thank you so much for coming on i've really enjoyed that great thanks very much basically steve once again thank you very much
1: thanks martin thanks Sunder. really great discussion Bab thanks for doing it so that you'll just
2: ping me an email or a tweet or something when it's out and i will share it and recommend you to everybody
0: we'll hold you to that perfect thank you very much i'll just do a quick outro and then um we'll finish the recording
2: Papos, yes sure thanks
0: and thank you very much for listening this has been the no man's land podcast and goodbye